All right, good morning, church family. If you have a Bible, or if you have a Bible app, or if you need to grab a Bible in the pew, whatever Bible you can find, uh, go ahead and grab it and open it with me to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and we're going to be in chapter 19 this morning. For those of you who are new to First SF, uh, we have been taking our time walking through this very foundational book, and we've seen a couple of things. Number one, we've seen and learned a lot about who God is. We've talked about this many times. The primary purpose of Genesis is to reveal to us his creation, who God is and, and his character. And so that's what we've seen. But along the way, another thing that we've seen is how we as his creation have responded to him, have responded to who he is and have responded to his word. Up till this point, a lot of what we've seen has not been that great. Uh, you see very at the beginning, Adam and Eve respond with rebellion. You see Cain respond to God with anger. You see uh, the people of Noah's day respond to God with indifference. You see even last week, Sarah respond with laughter. There's all these responses that we as his creation, when we hear his word, respond to God. But on a few occasions, we've also seen the right response to God, what the Bible calls a response of faith. We as his people are to be a people that demonstrate through our lives and our actions and our beliefs and our obedience, faith. Hebrews 11 verse 1 defines faith for us. It says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So to respond to God with faith is not just to believe that there is a God. It's much more than that. It's to believe God. It's to believe His word is true, to trust Him to the extent that we obey him even when it seems crazy to the world. That's faith. Now, one of the main examples that we have seen of faith up to this point is this person we've been looking at over the last few weeks, a man named Abraham. Uh, different sports have their hall of fames. Well, the Bible has what it's called the hall of faith. A lot of people call it that in Hebrews 11. And it says this about Abraham. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham was a man that based his life not on what he could see, but on what God had promised. If you remember, all of that started back in Genesis 12, where even though Abraham was living a complete pagan life, worshiping false gods, the true God came to him and said, Abraham, I want you to leave everything. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave what makes you secure. I want you to leave what's comfortable, and I want you to follow me. Abraham says, where are you going? He says, just follow me. Obey me. I'll show you. Well, Abram, it said, did that. He trusted God. He believed that the promise of God was of greater worth than the comforts of this life. And so he began to live a life of faith. And I believe that's meant to be an example to us in this room. Today, as we get to Genesis 19, our text takes a pause on this story of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and all of that. And we see a different man who I think is a contrast to Abraham's faith. It's Abraham's nephew, a guy named Lot. Now, Lot's life is an interesting study. 
Because in many ways, we're going to find he is a man of contradictions. He's a man so like many of us in this room. On the one hand, he does believe God. When God came to Abram and said, I want you to leave Haran and follow me, who was the guy that was right next to him? Lot. Lot believed God. God, Lot obeyed. He went alongside Abraham. He knew right and wrong. He knows and worships the true God. And yet, what the Bible also tells us about Lot is that he was continually drawn to the comforts and pleasures that this world has to offer. In fact, if you think about his life, it's a picture of a man that is trying to hold two competing allegiances at the same time. Have you ever tried to do that? I would imagine all of us in some ways have have tried to do that. I see this a lot with newlyweds. Uh, Instead of listening to the Bible's counsel about leaving the parents and holding fast to their spouse, they try to hold on to two allegiances. The husband says, I want to please and make my wife happy, but I still want to please and make my mom happy too. Let me just tell you what happens over time. Those allegiances blow up into a big fight. You can't hold on to those things. Uh, Since we're in the NBA Finals, I think it's a proper time I didn't even say anything yet. I think it's a proper time to just confess that my allegiances have not always been with the Golden State Warriors. Now, growing up in Arkansas, there wasn't a clear sports NBA team that I was to cheer for. We didn't have any pro teams, but I knew two things. I knew, number one, I didn't like the Bulls, the Lakers, or the Celtics, okay? So those were just knocked off of my list. Those are the teams that almost everybody seemed to like. Number two, I knew I loved my grandparents. And you know who my grandparents loved? The San Antonio Spurs. And so, from a young age, I began to cheer for the San Antonio Spurs. Now, when we moved here, they had just drafted Steph Curry, who I liked playing NBA, and I quickly jumped on the Warriors bandwagon. I'll just say it. I was not a lifelong fan. I jumped right on when they began to win, okay? So that was me. I happily held these two competing allegiances. I saw no problem in that until one day that no longer worked. Why? One of our church members invited me to a Warriors basketball game. And wouldn't you know, who were they playing that day? The San Antonio Spurs. And so I can remember sitting there in Oracle Arena, and I had these two allegiances, and I realized, this isn't going to work. I'm going to have to choose. Well, I choose winners. So I chose the Golden State Warriors, and I've stuck with them ever since. But my point is this. There are going to be moments at life, at some point, your true allegiance is going to rise to the surface. That's what life does. It brings out our true allegiances. And when you look at the lot of life, life of Lot, yes, he loved God. He wanted to serve God. But what we're going to see in this text is that when the circumstances got rough, some of his true allegiances began to reveal themselves. I believe that God wants to show some of us where we're double-minded in the same way that Lot was in this text. There's really just two simple points this morning that I want us to look at concerning Lot. Number one, again, very simple. Lot was a sinner. It's our first point. If you're taking notes, you can probably just memorize that one. Lot was a sinner. In the hymn, Come Thou Fount, there's that line that says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Well, that's Lot's story. And you can see this even before we get to chapter 19. You have to remember when God called Abraham to leave Haran, Lot was right there next with him. He traveled with him. He worshiped and served the true God. But in chapter 13 of Genesis, they parted ways. Now, Lot was given first choice. 
Abraham said, Lot, you look around. You can pick any land for your family and for your, your flocks. You can pick anything. And in Genesis 13, verse 10, it said that when Lot saw the beautiful valley next to the Jordan River and compared it to Canaan, he said, this is a no-brainer. With his eyes, he looked, and that land was lush. It was way better than Canaan. There were cities. There was plenty of water. He had everything he could need to live a comfortable, secure life in the Jordan Valley. And so that's what he did. He said, I have dibs on that. And so in 13, verse 12, it said this, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, which was, of course, the land that God was leading them to, the land of God's promise, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. That's an ominous note, and we're going to get to Sodom and Gomorrah in just a second. But before that, I would imagine that all of you in this room can relate with Lot in the decision that he made in this text. I mean, you think about it, it was the logical choice. It was the practical choice. That land looked way better than Canaan. But here's the thing, it wasn't the land that God was leading them to. It wasn't the land of God's promise. It wasn't the land of blessing. Every day, each one of you in this room have to make decisions. Some are big, some are small. Some of you probably right now are in the midst of trying to make a big life decision. My question is this, do you begin with the counsel of God or do you begin by just looking and looking at the circumstances? Looking at what seems best, what's most practical, what's most logical? Do you spend time in his word, diving into this treasure that literally is an unending wealth of wisdom? Do you look at God's calling on your life, or do you just look out and say, well, what's going to make me more comfortable? Lot gave up a massive blessing because he was depending on what seemed best to him. Lot's draw toward the world and his decision-making kept him from enjoying the greater blessing of God. I have to wonder, how many times does that happen in our lives? I wrote down just a few practical things as I was thinking through this, ways that we make decisions. Maybe some of us in this room have decided, I'm going to send my kids to the finest school because that's what I have to do. That's the practical thing to do if they're going to be successful in life. And yet, has that decision left you so strapped financially that you can't live in the greater blessing of being generous, of being able to, to meet the needs of the people around you? Or maybe you're single this morning and you decided to start dating that guy that you thought was really attractive. Maybe he was the only guy that was showing you any attention, but the problem was he wasn't a Christian. You were met with this decision. You did what was logical. This is the person that's showing me attention. But now you're missing the greater blessing of walking alongside someone who pushes you spiritually, who when you're going through dark seasons in your life is there to speak the word of truth, over you to guide you and walk with you in the midst of tragedy. Maybe some of us in this room want our kids to be the next Joe Montana, the next Buster Posey, the next Steph Curry. So you've decided, if that's going to happen, I've got to put them on travel teams, which is going to take my family away from church almost every Sunday. You've said that's the practical decision, but in the midst of that, you've missed the greater blessing of being part of a church community that you were created for. Or maybe this morning you decided to take that job that pays more. It's the right step toward more prestige, toward more power. But I have to ask you this morning, does that decision, does that job demand so much of your time and energy 
that you miss out on the greater blessing of being a husband that pours into his wife, of being a dad that has the energy to play with his kids and disciple his kids as you've called to do. Without looking to God or his counsel, Lot looked towards Sodom, saw it looked really good, and took it without even seeking the Lord. How often do we do the same thing? In fact, this strategy, it's been familiar from the very beginning of time. Listen, if this sounds familiar, this is Adam and Eve in the garden. It says, so when the woman, Eve, saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave also some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is something we are all prone to. Lot's first misstep was to ignore God's counsel. And what did that do? It led him to the outskirts of Sodom, the place that God had just said is a wicked city. So with that in mind, let's look now at Genesis 19. We leave Lot, we don't hear about him after chapter 13. He's on the outskirts of Sodom, and then we read this in chapter 19, verse 1. It says, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. These are the two same angels that we talked about last week that were were with the Lord meeting with Abraham and Sarah, okay? So now they're in Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. Spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So back in chapter 13, where was, where was Lot? He's on the outskirts of Sodom, right? Now, years later, where do we find him? He's in Sodom, right? His home is in Sodom, the city that God has declared is a wicked city. As I was reading that this week, I think this is a very, very important lesson for each one of us. When we are being drawn away from God, we all begin to ask the wrong questions. We do what Lot did in this text. We ask, how far is too far? Or this, how close to the line can I get to sin without it being sin? Those are the wrong questions. That's what Lot does. He moves closer and closer to Sodom until one day, where does he find himself? in Sodom. If you've got to the line, let me just tell you, friends, you have lost the battle. So many of us, I think, ask the wrong questions. We say, is pornography okay as long as I'm not cheating on my spouse? Is greed okay if I'm saving lots of money for retirement? Is is getting just a little buzz okay as long as I'm not getting fully drunk? We say, how close to sin can I get? But friend, eventually you are going to cross that line. I wonder this morning, what line are you getting close to? What boundary has God given? And you're, you're saying, how close can I get instead of what the Bible tells us to do? The Bible says, don't ask where is the line. Ask where is Jesus? Where is God's righteousness? Pursue that. Then you don't have to worry about the line. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 says this. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Friend, is that true of your life this morning? Are you pursuing righteousness 
are you getting closer and closer to the line? We have a great lesson in the life of Lot. Well, the story continues. Let's read what happens in verse 4. It says, But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. That's talking in a sexual way. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. So in these verses, we see exhibit A of of the wickedness of Sodom. Without any connection to the true God, these were a people who were violent. They're a people of injustice. They're a people of sexual immorality who did what was right in their own eyes without any thought to those they were hurting. They were a wicked people. Well, thankfully, their actions did not escape the eyes of our God. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, he tells us what he thinks about Sodom. He says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So the picture here is that the Sodomites were a fully wicked people. It's clear that Lot knows in this instance that what they're asking is wrong. He's outside the door begging them not to do what they are planning to do. He's a man of contradiction. He knows right from wrong. It says that in in 2 Peter that he was distressed by all the sin that was around him. So in one way, he's different than the Sodomites. He, He knows what they're doing is wrong. But he does what many of us do when we see wrong and sin on the outside. He responds by sinning himself. That's what we see in verse 8. Keep reading with me. He says to them, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge? Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands, that's some of the angels, and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. And you read this and it's a very sad story. And what becomes very clear is this, Lot is not the hero of this story. He's not the hero. Not only had he not sought God's counsel and then moved to the boundary line of Sodom, but here we see that Lot, in seeing sin, responds with something just as sinful. It's horrible. He says, don't take them. Here are my two virgin daughters. Do what you will with them. This is not a hero. Thankfully, the two angels intercede and keep all of that from happening. But here's something I want you to write down. It is a pivotal truth from this text. Not only is Lot's problem that he is in Sodom, it is that Sodom is in him. Do you understand that? Lot's problem is not only that he is in Sodom, this wicked city, it's that Sodom, that wickedness, is also in his own heart. I think it's very easy for us in our city to look around and see vibrant displays of of sin and brokenness. We look and say, well, yeah, that is sexual immorality out there. That is greed out there. 
Yeah, that's injustice out there. Here's the bigger question for you this morning. Do you realize that all of those same things are in here? It's not just Sodom, it's us. Sin exists in each one of our hearts. I don't think I can say this strong enough. The greatest problem you face is not your spouse's sin. The greatest problem is not your neighbor's sin. It's not your co-worker's sin. It's not our politician's sin. The sin that is a hundred times more dangerous than any of the sin out there is the sin that you will find in your heart. It's the sin that I will find in my heart. At the end of the day, there is nothing that we can do to bring healing and forgiveness for the sin of other people. That is a work only God can do. But what God has called us to do as his people is to examine our own hearts, to confess and acknowledge the sin within and do what the Bible says, repent. Repent of that sin, to turn away from it and to turn to Christ. That is what we are called to as a people. It's not to look at the Sodom and Gomorrahs of this life and say, well, how bad are they? It's to see within us, how bad am I? You see this in this text. It is imperative that we do that, not tomorrow, not next week, but we do it today. Why? Because judgment is at the doorstep. So we see with the people of Sodom, the people of Sodom gave no thought to the fact that God would bring judgment. As they looked at their life, they, they, they acted as if they would never be accountable for their sin. And I think that's what many of us do. But what was the reality? Judgment was already there. The angels had come to bring the judgment of God. God had seen their actions against him. The God of the universe, as we've already seen in Genesis, is a holy God. He's a just God who will bring judgment. He has to. It's unloving, it's unmerciful, it's unjust to just ignore the violent sin of our world. He will bring judgment, which what makes what happens in verse 15 and 16 crazy. See, the angels had warned Lot, the judgment's coming. And this is what we read, verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. So it's urgent. He says, what are you doing sleeping? Wake up. Get out of the city. God's judgment is coming. This is an urgent matter, but look at what it says in verse 16. But he lingered. But he lingered. Those words are absolutely shocking. Lot lingered. He delayed. He hesitated. It's almost unfathomable to think that that the declaration of God's righteous judgment could be so clear, could be so explicit, so could be so imminent, and yet someone would hesitate to escape it. It's unfathomable unless we stop and again realize, that's me. It's not just Lot. This is us. That's what I do. I am the person that believes in heaven and all of its joys But in this life, I find myself longing for the comforts of this life. I'm the person that that knows my days are short, but I live as if I will have tomorrow. I'm the person that knows that those hidden sins in my heart are going to bring destruction, but what do I do? I let them linger. I don't deal with them. I play with them. I think maybe someday God will do something, but not today. 
I know the urgency of the moment, but I linger. I don't think I'm alone in this room. As I've been working through this text this week, God showed me, Ryan, you are Lot. You're him. And so the final question I want us to consider this morning is this. Is there any hope for a heart that lingers? Is there hope for for those of us in this room that desire to serve God? We know the true God. We love the true God. And yet we linger with the things of this world. We linger with sin. Is there any hope? The answer in this spot and in the rest of the Bible is a definitive yes. There is hope. And that is what reveals the shocking nature of God's grace. You see, this morning it is not shocking that Lot was a sinner. What's shocking is our second point, and that is this, Lot was saved. It's not that he was a sinner, it's that he was saved. As Lot lingered, I want you to read what happens in verse 16. It says, so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. Underline that next phrase, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Friends, this is our hope. That on the day that God judges sin, that God would rescue our lingering hearts and in his compassion and mercy, take us to a place of safety forever. It is remarkable to me that in 2 Peter 2 verse 7, it's the only other mention of Lot in in the New Testament, and this is how Lot is described. Listen to this. Righteous Lot. When I read those words, I thought, how? You read this story, there is nothing righteous about Lot. Lot was no more righteous than the people of Sodom. Why did God show him in compassion and mercy? Why did God save him on the day of judgment? It couldn't have been because of his actions. I think we get the answer to that in verse 29. If you would, look at it with me. It says, So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now here's the thing. When it says that God remembered Abraham, it doesn't mean, oh, he just remembered Abraham's alive. No, what it's talking about is the covenant. That covenant that Mike talked about a few weeks ago. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, of which Lot was a part. When Lot was saved and declared righteous, it was not because he was without sin. He was declared righteous because he was under the covenant that God had graciously provided. Through the covenant of Abraham, he had been brought into an enduring relationship with a living God and been made righteous. I want you to think about how that truth connects with our lives today. As we've seen in this passage, like Lot, we too are all sinners. There's no one in this room that can stand before God and say, hey, I deserve heaven because of my life, my actions. I'm a righteous person. None of us can do that. We're just like Lot. We get to the line of sin. We fall into sin. We linger in sin. But here's the good news of the gospel. It's that in the midst of our lingering hearts of sin, God fulfilled his promise to Abraham through sending his only son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sin. He sent the only true righteous one, Jesus Christ, to die in our place so that while we are sinners, yes, we can be saved and declared righteous 
because of what Jesus has done for us. That is the shocking nature of the good news of the gospel. We are sinners, and yet we can be saved through the covenant, the greater covenant of Jesus Christ. What's amazing about grace is not that we were so wonderful that God died for us. It is that while we were sinners stuck in our sin, that's when he died for us. And so, friends, here's the thing. When, when you meet God on the day of judgment, and all of you will, I hope you realize it this morning, you will stand before God and give an account to your life. When you meet him, I sure hope you plan to say, when he says, why should I pardon you? I hope that your plan is not to say, because I've lived a righteous life. Because if we're honest, that's not true of any of us. We've sinned against a holy God. When I stand before the Father and give account of my life, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to point to his right hand because that's where Jesus is. I'm going to say it's not based on anything I've done, but I am united with the true righteous one who died for me. He took upon himself my sin and gave me his righteousness. Friends, that is our hope. And that is the amazing truth that we see pointed to in this text. The question as we close is this, what are you going to do with it? I think this, as I was reading and thinking about this passage, the worst thing that could happen is for you to hear this and say, well, this is good news. That means I can just go live a very sinful life and be saved in the end. If you're saying that, I'm just telling you, friend, I don't know that you're a Christian. No one that encounters the true grace of God says, hey, I'm going to just go live for sin because he saved me. No. We don't want Lot's legacy. I mean, you think about Lot's life. His life was marked by fear. His legacy was forever marred by the sin he lingered in. And the fact, if you were to read through the end of chapter 19, you find him at the end of his life in a cave in fear, surrounded by even more sexual immorality. His only two descendants, his legacy are his two sons, Ammon and Moab, who he had in an incestuous relationship with his daughters. This is stuff that you can't make up. You want to know what happens with the Ammonites and the Moabites? They're two of the key stumbling blocks to the people of God throughout the rest of the Old Testament. The Moabites were known for their sexual sin. The Ammonites were known for their cruelty and violence, even sacrificing their children. That's Lot's legacy, okay? Yes, he was saved, but he made zero impact with his life. As I was reading that, I couldn't help but think about 1 Corinthians 3.13. It says these words, Each one's work will become manifest for the day. It's talking about the day of judgment. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. You see, Lot, at the end of his life, he had nothing to show for his life. And I hope that's not your goal. I hope if Christ has saved you, if he has given you his righteousness, that you would be more like Abraham. You'd say, God, you have my life. I want to worship you. I want to serve you. I want to obey you. When you speak, I will listen. When I fall short, I will repent. I don't know about you, but I want Abraham's legacy, not Lot's. I want to be a man who lives wholeheartedly for Christ, continually repenting of my sin and putting my trust in him. I pray, church family, that would be true of you as well.
we're going to move into a time of, of prayer and reflection where you have some time just to, to talk to God. What's he showing you in this sermon? What, what sin are you getting near? But I want you to think about these questions. They're going to be on the screen. Question number one is this. Have you been rescued and declared righteous by Jesus? Have you been saved from your sin? Are you like Lot who is lingering but you've been saved? Or are you like the Sodomites who never had been saved? They didn't know the true God. My hope for you today is that you would be a child of God. And that only comes through turning from your sin and trusting what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Have you been rescued this morning? Number two, what decisions are you making right now that you need to seek God's counsel on rather than relying on your own wisdom? What do you need to seek God on this morning? Number three, are there any areas of your life where you are nearing the line of sin rather than running to Jesus? Where are you playing with fire this morning? Confess that this morning. And then last but not least, what kind of legacy do you want to leave? The legacy of Lot, the legacy of Abraham.